because you talk about lining pockets, we're going to talk about lining pockets here. Are you ready to go? Sheldon, let's put up this graphic. Around the world, it's estimated $1 trillion is paid in bribes every Leaked year. documents have revealed how some UK banks have helped criminals, money launderers and Russians under sanctions and have also failed to stop crime when they suspected it. Some the of the sectors which have been rocked by uh, corporate corruption and price-fixing scandals over the last uh, 20 years or so. You want to build a house? Well, there was a cartel involved in the cement sector. Do you want to put food on the table? Cartels in maize. Welcome or welcome back to another season of the Global Get Down podcast. I'm your host, Belle. And I'm your other host, Gaurav. And we're super excited to announce the official start of a new series of episodes, all centered around the theme of unconventional IR. This year, we're aiming to go beyond the Western focus of mainstream international relations to highlight the regions, issues, and perspectives that exist on the margins or that are underreported. This also means spotlighting the brilliant people working at the intersection of IR and other disciplines that have unintuitive but still relevant ways of looking at political, economic, and social issues that us IR students aren't typically exposed to. Now, with that being said, the episode we're bringing you today has to do with AI and corporate corruption. But before we bring in our guests, let's lay the groundwork by first introducing this issue of corporate corruption in regards to Canadian mining companies. The report by the Working Group on Mining and Human Rights in Latin America described 22 cases of large-scale extractive infrastructure projects in various countries, which eroded the land economy, social communities, and health of the people living in those areas. Now, while Canada is aware of the human rights violations in each of these cases, it still continues to provide political, legal, and financial support to mining companies. Why is that? The report pointed to the internal conditions and weak legal frameworks of the host state, which allows corruption to persist, thereby benefiting Canadian economic interest at the detriment of the victims impacted by mining projects. Mining companies are also shielded from accountability through free trade agreements and the lack of an international regulatory framework. In other words, little to no oversight creates a breeding ground for corporate corruption. Our guest for today, Dilapo Makinde, focuses her research on integrating corporate governance and corporate social responsibility with artificial intelligence mechanisms to tackle corporate corruption in the global south as well as Africa. She is a doctoral student at the Peter A. Allard School of Law as well as a Liu Scholar at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. We're super excited to have you with us. Let's start with your area of expertise, corporate corruption. Could you define corporate corruption, what it is, what it looks like, and explain why it's so hard to tackle? Thank you. Um, it's nice to be here and to contribute to this topic. So talking about corporate corruption, corporate corruption or corruption generally is simply about using you know, power for private gain. And uh, that's, you know, we have seen that in numerous cases over the years, even in the Canadian context. Although we have just quite a handful of Canadian cases that have been prosecuted right till the end. But an example, a notable example is the case of Aaron Griffiths. Uh, they're a Calgary-based Canadian multinational company involved in the extractive sector, only to do business or get into the, uh, the uh, extractive sector in Chad. And... Um, in order to do that, they had to, you know, get some contracts, uh, production sharing contracts and, and all of that. And in doing that, they paid certain amounts of money to the wife of the Chad, um, you know, of the Chad um, ambassador. And that was later discovered to when the 
company was about to be listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. The company actually self-reported because I think of the changing directors and the company and the newer directors realized that there had been some transactions that had gone down that were not appropriate, which in this case was bribery. You know, the child minister in charge of uh, the extractive sector to, to sign certain contracts to enable them um you know, get gain entry into the the sector there. So that's an example of how corporate corruption happens, range from bribery to illicit financial flows to money laundering to a host of other things. Because it's such a wide and wide ranging topic, uh, but it's in in the context of the research that I do, I focus specifically on on bribery. So, is it then fair to say that um, corruption in most instances is concentrated in the inner circles like for example when you have like a um, top-down command system in a multinational corporation corruption and bribery is more so concentrated in the activities of the figures of authority for example in this case it would be the ceo and his circle is it more broad and doesn't like, filter through to the, I guess you could say, other sectors or other employees working in the company as well? Yes, um, I think corruption ha- happens at any level of the organization, from the top to the bottom to the middle. So at any level, it does occur. You have certain situations like this example of the Griffith Energy case, where it was the CEO that was directly involved in providing the bribe to the uh, ambassador's wife. In other cases, you have situations where probably the CEO authorizes a junior employee or a mid-level employee to do that, or even in certain cases where the CEO might not be aware, but some other person in the organization may believe that this is a necessary step for them to be able to make progress or gain entry uh, in a country or in, or in a sector. Uh, because often, oftentimes, corruption is often seen as the fourth factor of production. You know, so it's seen most people regard it as something that is necessary to do business. It was, and this was something that was actually the case. It was, it was in the past before the uh, Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act was amended. At some point, it was actually okay to write off, you know, bribe, bribes as part of expenditure for expansion and expenditure for, you know, doing business. But it was later on that the act was changed to reflect that giving of bribes, you know, to foreign public officials, anything of that sort, classifies as is illegal. So um, you see that it's not peculiar to just um, CEOs. Um, anyone in the organization can be involved, and that's why you know it's important for organizations to have that tone of the tone at the top approach. Once everyone in the organization can see that the CEO, the board, and other members involved in the company have established a clear anti-corruption policy and are actively doing something to to implement it and to ensure that it works because it's not just having that box checked and say I have the anti-corruption policy in place. No, you also have to continually ensure that it's been implemented and that you review it you know, at different points in time to ensure that all the employees involved across different because you know multinational companies are across different um, countries in the world uh, so it's important to ensure that all all employees in different subsidiaries in different groups across the world adhere to that policy uh, that the company has put in place and that kind of also raises the issue of corporate governance which is part of your research corporate governance in the sense that the company is taking 
social responsibility for the way that they conduct business. Like, for example, training key staff and employees, as well as senior management, to identify and address issues of corporate corruption, and having these policies be integral to the company's more broader framework, rather than just something that they do to check it off a box, basically. Yes, so that's that's the approach I think is important to also consider. Because when we look at it, we see that we have so many, you know, we have a number of laws. We have, even within the Canadian sphere, we have the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act. We have the Transparency uh, of Extractive Sectors Act, you know, something of a similar name. On the international scene, we have the OECD, um, you know, Anti-Bribery Convention and so many other, you know, regulations, even though international law is somewhat considered soft law and, and, and not binding. But we have a number of such conventions or acts in the country that act, address bribery and corruption or bribery of foreign public officials. But the thing is, I find that we don't have so much coming from the companies themselves. It's one thing for the government to have these legislations in, in place, and that's fantastic. And we need to do more on that. We need to prosecute more. We need to, because one of the complaints people have had so far is we don't have that many. Bribery is something that happens quite often, but we don't have that many companies being prosecuted and brought to you know accounts for their actions. So there's definitely need, need, a need for that. You know, in, more of a need for that. But also, my argument is that there's a need to also look inward. The corporation itself, as a good corporate citizen, has to look inward to prioritize anti-corruption as something that is important to them. Because now, companies are moving away from the traditional view of shareholder value, that the whole essence of the corporation is to do business, make profit for the shareholders, and that's all. We've moved moved away from that because we realize that the company has, you know, duty to to the other stakeholders, duty to the environment, duty to the public, duty to the employees, and you know a host of other people. So it's important that the company itself realizes that this is something they have to do as part of doing business plans. They have to also prioritize the issue of anti-corruption. It's um, incidental to doing business that you have in place an anti-corruption, you know, policy or anti-corruption regime or mechanism that seeks to address or prevent corruption as they do business. So, and we've seen from Transparency International reports on exporting corruption and some other discussions, uh, news releases by James Cohen, the the head of the of Transparency International, that. A lot of Canadian companies tend to think that corruption is not their problem. They they don't prioritize it because they they think that oh it's not it's not it's not it's not our problem, you know. But it is a huge problem, especially when you look at the ranking of uh, you know tra- or the ranking of Canada's ranking on Transparency International Index and how it keeps falling year after year. Um, so it's important that companies do something about it. Yes, we often call on government to take action and do things, and I agree that that's, that's necessary. But it's also equally necessary for companies themselves to act as good corporate citizens without having without having to without having to wait for the force of the law to be applied to them. So you know, so in, just just as we're talking about issues of sustainability and climate change, which companies are now considering as core issues in their business as they, as they do business and in fine-tuning their business model, anti-corruption is also a pertinent element that we need to also consider um, in doing business. So if we look at this from the perspective of the carrot and the stick, which is something that IR scholars do all the time, um, carrots are incentives and sticks are the punishments or disincentives where the carrots aren't enough to work. So in this case, we've established 
you established through your research and the way you described it that there aren't really any incentives for these corporate for these uh, corporations working in the global south where there's very little oversight to actually regulate their own behavior but then that's where you bring in the stick the punishments of the disincentives so in this case with this company that self reported themselves Griffiths Energy International and Chad um when they did self report themselves what were the consequences for them what's the kind of um precedent that's been set for future comp- corporations in the future which might think of committing such acts of corporate corruption um i think the courts already have set same punishments up in place for issues of bribery and corruption and fines are a huge part of it huge fines are often levied against companies that are found guilty of uh, corruption even when it is self disclosed uh, so that is definitely a huge motivating factor because um, in as much as companies have moved away from this from the shareholder centric point of view of profit making but companies do the whole essence of forming a private company public you know limited company is to make profits so once you know companies know that the bottom line because the, the idea of paying bribes is to gain an advantage to be able to make more money that's the bottom line the bottom line is always more money you know so if they if they find if they realize that even if they, they gain money from that transaction that's that started with a bribe that they will still have to pay that and more when that bribe when that transaction is uncovered i think that's a huge uh disincentive for them to to want to in, engage in bribery and corruption because when you realize that it's there's no benefit at the end you stand that you stand to gain once you once you you are caught and once you're prosecuted in addition to, in addition to the fines you have to pay it, it could be millions uh, you know of dollars you can all your, your reputation as well in as a company will also be greatly affected and in today's world a lot of people investors look consider the, the company's reputation before investing you know so your your reputation as a company is something you want to protect jealously look at the case of essence leveling for example essence leveling has been equated somewhat to be corruption so whenever we think about the company we think about all the, the slew of corruption allegations that have been levied against them so it's important for companies who are doing business to one if they, if they are if the business case for having an anti-corruption policy is one protect to protect their but their bottom line because once you know they are caught because it will happen at some point once they are caught they have to pay even more than what they had to pay out in bribes and to in terms of reputation uh once they once their reputation is affected the the number of people of, of consumers of stakeholders who want to engage with them will reduce and to affect their their business going forward and you speak on the company's own placing of importance on their reputation and on the way that the public and society views them which is really important for their profits and i was wondering since having reputation being the main factor that these companies want to protect and having that fear of their reputation kind of crumbling down or being destroyed as a disincentive to engage in corporate corruption on the flip side of that are there any incentives for these companies to kind of integrate CSR mechanisms and anti-corruption policies into their frameworks before the kind of destruction of their reputation incentivizes that for them? Yes. Um, I, I think your question is, is a build-up of the previous question, and it's the same, you know, it's just if you just flip it the other way and you have the, the answer. So in order to prevent loss of, rep- of reputation or loss in profit, the reasonable step is for the company to take steps to prevent that from happening ahead of time. And that's when CSR comes in. 
So CSR initially, I know there's a number of ta- terms now used to, to explain what CSR is. You have ESG, you have you know sustainability, you have so many other, other terms. But I, I particularly still use the term CSR because I want to emphasize the point of corporate social responsibility because I think that drives from the point that it is the responsibility of the company to do these things you know, rather than waiting, because we're always waiting on, you know, government or some other authority to regulate companies, which is, yes, it is the duty of the government to do that, uh, you know, provide some oversight and supervision, but also as, you know, as corporate citizens, for example, as individual citizens of our respective countries and as people, we have obligations to our, our countries and where we live and things like that. So we don't have we don't have to wait for the government to tell us what to do before we do the things that are right to protect you know our interests. It's the same thing for companies. Companies also have to, on their own accord, do these things, uh, and this includes having that mindset. So that corporate social responsibility mindset, uh, you know, ensures that the company has at the heart of its operations a need to prevent corruption when doing business. You know, um, you know, in the global south. Because, particularly because at this point in time, um, in many global South countries, um, anti-corruption frameworks are very lax. So it's easy to kind of circumvent those, those you know, like legislations, those policies, and that are not being implemented uh, as, as such. So that, but because we have such a strong framework here, there's a need for us to guard that even when doing business abroad. So um, ensuring that you know that uh staff you know all staff at various levels are trained because corruption can happen bribery can actually happen at any point it could happen at the reception a receptionist desk it could happen with the ceo's office it could happen with the uh, admin staff so any at any level so everybody in the organization has to be trained effectively on how to recognize and how to deal with corruption so that's very important and you know it's uh, apart from that you know frequent trainings even for board members as well um and just putting in place general measures to ensure that um it is clear to anyone doing business in the company and with the company that they take anti-corruption seriously so the incentive there is before you so as not to get to the point of having to you know what you call medicine after death you know the whole thing has happened you've lost a lot of money you've you ha- your reputation has been tanked and then you now start wondering what to do or what, how to start how to you know, manage a crisis so to prevent that crisis from happening you know thinking ahead is the, is the need to have all of these measures in place and even sometimes um when you get to courts for example when the matter gets to court and in case of companies that later on um, that are you know accused of bribery and corruption, so courts often consider consider, for example, have the, has the company put in place you know sufficient measures to put, to prevent this from happening. All of these are considered when determining the penalty or the the fine or whatever the company has to pay or do to um, to address the corruption issue. So it's very important uh, for companies to look at all of these issues. Uh, beforehand before it gets to the point of oh this whole thing has fallen down and you know we have to try and you know put things back together again and on a sort of larger scale just to set the stage before we move on to what you say is the solution in your research you've spoken a lot about csr and how it's the corporate's own responsibility to kind of moderate corruption within their own ranks whether it be from the ceo level or to the receptionist level um but do nation-state governments actually have a role to play in this? Would you say that their policies actually matter in this case, or, it, or would you leave it more to individual corporations to sort out corruption within their ranks? 
Um, no, I think we, we definitely need a multi-stakeholder approach to corruption because it's such a complex issue and, you know, that happens across borders. So it's not just companies. It's a multi-pronged approach, definitely, and the government has a role to play. So government definitely needs to do more. Uh, there's a whole there's a whole lot of discussion on what needs to happen. I don't know if you followed the uh, cooling commission's inquiry into money laundering in British Columbia that happened uh, for the past three years. I think they re- released their re- report in June earlier this year. So uh, there's a huge issue of money laundering as well, you know, in the province. So the provincial government is work is also look, looking into that, and that was the purpose of the commission's inquiry and they've issued their report. So. Even at the federal level as well, there's also need for the federal government to do more. Like I mentioned previously, there's issue of persecution. More persecution needs to happen. I think that persecution definitely serves as a deterrent. Once companies know that they cannot get away with this issue, they can't get away with you know, cases of bribery and corruption, they will be constrained to put things in place ahead of time to prevent that from happening. So that, that is one issue. I also think even on the international scene, there's a need for much stringent because international scene has been focused more on soft law, you know, measures to, to convince or to help companies comply, like the UN guiding principles on you know business and human rights and you know things like that, the UN Global Compact and all of that. But I, I think there's need for more binding. There's a need for more binding measures on international scene that actually also holds trans, transnational corporations accountable for their actions. Uh, people always mostly talk about this from the aspect of human rights, but also think on the, from the aspect of corruption as well. You need to hold them accountable for their actions as well on the, on the international scene is important. And there's a lot, you know, there's a whole lot more that government can do as well. Uh, some people have also, have also suggested that, you know, companies that are involved in bribery or corruption who have been prosecuted for example who have been uh, associated with such acts that you know loans and things like that issued by the Canadian government should not be given to them uh, they should have and you know various forms of fines and uh, measures should be used to it's used as a punitive measure to deter them from uh, continuing or continuing that line um, so since we are an IR podcast at the end of the day, it's worth considering the global cooperation aspect of everything we talk about. So in your view, what would a global agreement on corporate, um, on corporate corruption actually look like? Would it be kind of like the Paris Agreement where you have nationally determined contributions or where you leave it to each nation state to set their own standards? Or would it be more of a stringent approach that's required in this case? How would it look like in your model? So it's, it's talking about a global um, approach to corruption. I'm not sure how that will work exactly because it's such a particular issue that depends on the country and the context, host of considerations that come to, come to addressing corruption on a, national, on, a, on a global scale like that. So I don't know if that is even possible because even at this point, there's been talks about creating an international corruption courts but then there's also been backlash against that because a lot of people fear that it will go the same way of the international criminal courts because and uh, the international criminal courts there's been allegations that it's been mostly focused on africa you know because most of the cases the court hears are you know cases in africa so there's a con there and because corruption is something that's speculated to the global south there's also that concern that Oh, if we have an international, you know, corruption court, for example, it is to be the same thing where we are, you know, we are also focusing on the global south and maybe even particularly Africa. 
Uh, so a lot of people have pushed back against that idea, and I support that pushback because it's definitely it's going to just be a repeat of history. So at this point, um, I, I don't know if a, a global approach is the is the way to uh, to go about this. I think we need to first start with with nations, you know, at the individual levels each country you know doing their best to address this uh on the national scale and also corporations doing their own work in uh in preventing corruption so yeah maybe this would be a conversation for the future when we've gotten or we've made substantial progress on um, national commitments and we can now begin to think and put you know forward ideas about what a global anti-corruption strategy or action plan uh, would look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the topic of um, national motivations and interests, um, let's kind of go on to the topic of artificial intelligence and its role in combating corporate corruption. Um, so, for example, in one of the articles that you wrote, you mentioned the tax administration services of Mexico who used AI algorithms and analytical tools to detect um, fraudulent businesses and fraudulent transactions within a three-month period. And we see that AI is very good at detecting corrupt activities that human efforts can't pick up at a much faster rate as well. But we see in the past that companies have kind of used AI to not to mitigate corporate corruption, but to actually maximize profit. So I was wondering if you had any frameworks or legislation measures in mind that would help these companies kind of shift their approach to AI from a profit maximizing approach or motive or effect to a kind of anti-corruption mitigation effort. Um, yes, I think that's a, that's a really good question because um, from the little research I have done so far, because my research is still in progress and I'm still working on it. But from what I've discovered so far, you know, when we talk about AI, well, I'm mostly excited about AI in terms of what, uh, you know, in terms of fact that we have an iPhone, you know, we have Siri, we have, you know, Uber, we have so many of these gadgets nowadays that we didn't have, you know, some years back and things like that. And companies are using that, you know, mostly for profit making, to make profits and to, yeah, it, it, it makes, you know, daily life easier for us, improves our, you know, daily life. But at the same time, you know, it also makes profit for the company, which um, uh, which is the aim of, you know, of, of them doing business in the first place. Uh, but many companies haven't also considered how AI can be used, you know, as a, as a corporate governor, as, a, as an anti-corruption tool. And I think that's where... You know that's the the benefit of my research is to create awareness and create discussions on this. Have we considered how AI and machine learning tools can be used to address corruption? And the example you give, you know, of the tax administration services in Mexico is also a good example because they they've shown that AI is faster and AI is more efficient. It can pick up these things because when you have thousands of documents before you, there's a difficulty in you know skimming through all of that and getting all the relevant information but if you have a tool that you've configured to do that you know it will provide all that information for you you know at a much more faster faster pace than you would not ordinarily do it if you had done to do it if you have to do it yourself so uh that itself is is a fantastic opportunity for companies to look into and i know microsoft is doing some work in the anti-corruption area the use of ai in, you know in, in achieving that so um i know they are you know talking about open data big data and things like that and the idea is to use ai to 
they also look at um, information disclosed through beneficial ownership because many con- many countries now are, are you know putting in place beneficial ownership uh, disclosures so you need to know who owns what uh, who owns what in the company and all of that so once we have that information out in the public you know you will be able to use ai to see okay this company this is how the company is acting in society this is what they are doing you know so how being able to compare the information we have and compare it with how the company is acting will provide information about okay so we would show okay this there's something going on here that we need to look into and like in, in the griffiths case that we mentioned for example if you know we had beneficial at the, at the time the case was at, at the time the issue happened if we had a beneficial ownership register that had all the information about you know shareholdings and companies and things like that and um uh we had ai you know ai tools that were being used in used in that aspect we would have been able to see or it's, it's quite apparent to anyone that oh this money that's being paid by you know th- by the company to you know this other company consulting company actually the owner of this consulting company is the wife of the ch- you know chadian ambassador be able to draw the links and connections easy you know quite easily and know that okay this is uh, a, a, an issue that we need to uh, look into so th- those are examples those are some examples of how ai can be used and particularly for the extractive industries t- sector it does I, I know canada is not an implementing country of the eiti the that is the the eiti standards but the eiti standards require dis- numerous disclosures so many disclosures about who, who companies are making payments to maybe Canadian governments or foreign governments? Who licenses are granted to in the in, you know in the country and different things about the, you know the operation of the extractive sector? So much information, but the issue is being able to pass through that information and see and create links and understand what is what and what is happening. Be able to draw the connections. That's why AI is also beneficial because AI will be able to go through that vast amount of information and draw connections that. Ordinarily, it would to take us some time as individuals to, to make those connections, and um, I think that's that would be a good way to to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think AI definitely has a lot of potential when it comes to the more administrative side of of businesses and corporations. Just making sure that all the books are balanced and the ledgers checked out, check out, and the budgets are intact. We were also curious to know about the ethics of using artificial intelligence to kind of mitigate corporate corruption because technologies in themselves can be used as tools to facilitate corruption as for example corrupt persons in the company can use ai to fine-tune their processes and integrating ai into anti-corruption policies ensures companies have tools in place to combat corruption yes but it also means that those companies have easier and quicker access to complex algorithms that have the potential to obscure corrupt activities. So when we're talking about the ethics of using AI to mitigate corruption or to help combat corporate corruption, do you think companies can be counted on to utilize AI in like a responsible way? Uh, this is a very, um, very, very important question because yes, while the you know we can talk about the benefits of AI, we also need to be mindful of its you know inherent challenges and dangers, which some of which you've you've mentioned already. And yeah, so AI. The thing is, you you ask if companies can be trusted to use AI, they, but they're already using AI. That's the thing about it. They're already using AI for for so many things. So it's not a question of if they can be trusted to use AI. I think it is how best we can ensure 
that you know we, they, they protect our interest or interest of the consumer of the or the public you know as they use AI because they're already using it and there definitely there are some uh, measures in place you know data privacy and things like that that it, we've also put in place to uh, to ensure that the public is protected but in the context of AI of um, anti-corruption I think it's important to emphasize that companies need to be aware that. You know, these AI tools do, uh, do raise challenges, some of which you've mentioned. And even within, referring to the Colin Commission inquiry, one of the things they, they, they pointed out was that many times, even when a company or an organization or, you know, a government improves an anti-corruption process, you know, the people who who commit these crimes, they get to know about how this pro- how these programs are improved. Then they improve their own process, their own corrupt processes to beat the system. So it does happen that you the people even use AI, you know, for to facilitate corruption as well. That's also an issue. AI too has the problem challenge of replicating bias, particularly when if you train if you know if they are training AI or machine learning tool with certain data sets that is already biased, it will definitely replicate that bias. So if, for example, you're you're doing a project that relies on information about people in prisons, people involved in the criminal justice system, because racialized people, black, indigenous people are always are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. In any 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 data or any any result you gain from that AI tool or machine learning tool replicates that bias, you know, that will showcase, you know, these people as, you know, problematic in the criminal justice system. So there's a need to, for people to be mindful of that when using AI and, and tools like that. Um, so, but one thing that some people have called for, for example, is to ensure diversity in when, when creating these tools. So many times we find that these tools are probably made in the global north and then you just, you know, you have it, it becomes generally applicable across different countries in the global south as well. But there's a need when designing these tools to bring on board people from the global south to also contribute to the development of these applications, these, these mechanisms, so that it's rep, it, it reflect their you know their voices to reflect their concerns to reflect their or what they would like to see happen or going you know happen or how they would like to see the issue addressed so it's important to, i think that's an, a very important perspective when designing AI because there's a tendency for for a small minority and that's it and that has been the trend generally you know the global north makes a makes a certain prescription and then it's supposed to apply to all all countries across the across the world including the global south which shouldn't be everybody has to be on board in designing tools like this so companies must must ensure that when you're creating this these uh, these mechanisms for for example i suspect that if you know if we did not take into consideration you know third world perspectives it's likely that any ai tool that is made for example would Unnecessarily focus on the global south. Unnecessarily focus on African countries, and you know it's be like, oh, African countries are the problem. They are the ones, you know. There's a lot of corruption down there. You know, all of that's happening. Reinforcing that bias that's already there. But then there's still can can you know, you know global now countries. There's Canada who is also involved because corruption is a two-way thing. It's a give and take. So there's the giver, there's the receiver. So the giver also has to also be held accountable in in that, and that's where third world perspective, perspective from the global north, from global south, are useful. So you're able to say, okay, yes, there's the issue of you know receiving the bribe, but we also need to address the the supply of it, the demand and the supply. So having that conversation and being able to to do something about it 
um, would help uh, in developing AI tools um, addressing corruption. So we've spoken of um, budgeting fraud and financial inconsistencies and how AI can actually help detect these. Uh, but let's look at now on the ground impacts because we spoke about at the beginning at the head of the episode of actual human rights violations and mistreating of workers by these uh, companies that stem from the global north in global north and global south context. So we look at this from a more of a um, social justice and on the ground paradigm. Uh, could AI actually be employed to protect these individuals and help enforce principles like um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in more rural and more perceptible to exploitation communities? Could AI actually be a force for good in this case? So that takes its kind of benefits beyond just financial accounting. Is that a possibility? Um, yes, I, I think it's very much possible. Um, the thing about it is, you know, although human rights is often talked about in just in the human rights context, but I think um, anti-corruption and human rights are, are, you know, greatly linked because you find that a lot of, uh, of um, corruption actually leads to human rights abuses. So once you're able to tackle corruption, you're mitigating human rights abuses to a, to a large extent. Um, for example, you know, I, you know, I come from Nigeria and there's the whole issue of the East, uh, you know, about development and how, you know, extractive companies and all of that are always, are always doing business there and stuff like that. And there's a whole, whole lot of oil pollution, a lot of activities affecting the livelihood of those who were living in those communities. And as at the time as I was practicing, it was, it was a regular occurrence for 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 individuals and communities in that area to file sometimes you can have a thousand lawsuits filed concerning an issue an oil spill that happened in an, in an area so they are because they, they are filing because uh their, their human rights have been affected they've lost maybe their fishing fi, the, the fishes in, in the they have been you know killed uh, they've lost the right livelihood and things like that or maybe their homes are affected their water has been affected all of these are human rights issues and the reason why some of these things happen is simply because of corruption you know someone has paid someone money to look away and uh nobody cares about the people on the ground people who actually who are there in those communities who are suffering who have to go through these things so being able to address um, anti-corruption will have a positive effect on human rights. So if, when we use AI to also address you know, anti-corruption, I, I'm almost sure that that will have, you know, a, a, a to, tra- to translate to uh, a reduced, you know, a, a human rights, to reduce human rights violations within host communities where multinational companies do business. And just to kind of bring this all together in more of a standard model, uh, you advocated for a nationally driven as opposed to an international approach to tackle corporate corruption as more being more realistic. So should governments have standard algorithms with which they assess all registered companies in your model? Would you have special regulatory bodies in charge of these AI mechanisms or would you leave it more again to the individual level? Just to kind of understand your approach a little better. Um so yes, yeah, like I mentioned, there's a need for a multi-pronged approach to this issue. Um, and just to clarify, my, I'm not advocating for just only for 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 companies to deal with corruption by themselves. No, that's not my approach. The, my approach is for everybody to deal with corruption, but we also need to encourage or be to to encourage companies to take ownership of the problem. 
they have to see it as their responsibility you know once you see something as your responsibility you you even when when you wake up when you sleep when you do anything you're thinking about that thing because it's your responsibility it's the same way companies think about profit making as their responsibility they should think about you know addressing or preventing corruption as their responsibility but even with that yes i'm also advocating for a national for an, an enhanced national approach to addressing corruption yeah strategies you know improving the current um, legal framework improving the cfpoa improving you know guidelines about you know companies doing business abroad uh, because I know that there's a CSR guideline on, on, you know, to assess companies when doing business abroad and things like that. So the idea is for you know, an improvement in the existing legislative framework. Regula- a regulatory body could definitely take this up um, as a mandate to ensure that they to ensure that they are monitoring what companies are doing and how to, you know, continue ensuring that they are keeping in line with the relevant acts. So that would be my suggestion for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think especially when it comes to having companies that were that are profit-driven in the first place, like that's what they see as their responsibility. Having them transition to seeing anti-corruption as their responsibility takes a host of efforts from every level, not just the corporate level, but also the governmental level as well as the local grassroots level. And I think having AI as the solution to that is very interesting because when you think of AI, you think of not just the people, not just the CEOs and the people in the top levels of the corporate chain of command, but you also think of getting local workers and groups who have vested interests in their data or who have suffered human rights abuses and who are victims of the extractive projects that some companies are engaged in on their lands. I think it kind of brings them all together and they all have a stake in the issue as well, which is really interesting to hear. much to Lapo for your time today. It was really interesting to hear your innovative ideas about AI and how we can integrate that into our company systems moving forward. And I think that has a lot of implications for the international order as well, because multinational corporations have such a big stake and they hold such a big share of our understanding of the world and all of the activities that we're engaged in. So it's really interesting to hear how we can make them more transparent and more accountable. So thank you so much for your time today.